So we are picking up again at the end of uh, Romans chapter 3. Uh, this is our ninth week walking through this book where we intend to spend uh, most of this year. And in the book so far, uh, the Apostle Paul, who is its human author, has been preaching this message that sounds too good to be true. Uh, it especially sounds too good to be true to good, clean, religious folks. He's, he's preaching this idea that God calls wicked people righteous. And that when he does that, he's not lying because he's actually imparted to those wicked people who've come to believe in him his righteousness. He's saying that people come to him not by working for it, but by a free grace of God. And this is a totally surprising teaching. This is something that's counterintuitive, especially for religious people like us. But this has huge implications for our most important relationship, which is our relationship with God. I mean, what this means, if this is true, that God gives us his grace for free apart from any works we do, is that this means that God doesn't notice those who do enough righteous deeds and then call those people his own. He calls them his own and gives them his righteousness, even though they haven't done anything good yet. Which is kind of just this mind-blowing, counterintuitive way to think about things. It almost doesn't seem right. I mean, if this is true, this means that God's saving blessings don't go to people who work for them, but they only go to those who refuse to work for them. This means that God doesn't save people because they do what Jesus would do. He saves people because they recognize their need for what Jesus has done. This means that God doesn't help those who help themselves. He only helps those who realize they can't. Only helps those who realize that we're totally helpless on our own. And this means that God is building a people for himself, and it's made up not of the rock stars and the A-listers, but it's the people who confess their sinfulness, who confess Christ as Lord and say, he's our only hope, he's our only joy, he's our only hope for avoiding God's wrath, but also being part of his plan for the world. And this means that the people who most readily come to know God are those who are normally thought of as being the farthest from him. They're the, the outcasts and the tax collectors, the immoral, the people who have only their brokenness to admit to. They end up being closer to God than the religious and self-righteous people who are actually kept very far away by their arrogance. So God is a God who gives his righteousness to wicked people when they believe in him. He imputes it. He credits it to their account. He doesn't make them produce it. And God offers this totally free grace, his favor on account of Christ, to all who would trust in him. He offers a righteousness that's by faith, not by works. And Paul would go into synagogues, and he would preach this message, and he would be met with one opposition after another, especially from the religious folks, because this seemed like it was contrary to everything they knew of their Jewish religion. And this wasn't just them objecting to it. We object to it, too. I feel like every week I'm meeting with someone who is so dissatisfied with their Christianity and they feel like there's got to be more that they could be doing to be radical enough to be the really legitimate Christians, that there's got to be a more pure form, a more pure thing, a more ideal thing. There's got to be more that I can do to be loved and accepted by God because God couldn't possibly be pleased with me. But the message of Paul and the message of Romans and the message of the gospel is that our righteousness is this alien righteousness from outside of ourselves that's given to us through faith. It's handed to us for free in Jesus. God's favor on account of Christ is ours for free. And if this is true, this is a major paradigm shift. This is going to mean huge freedom 
from all of our religious angst. It's going to mean freedom from our fears. It's going to mean freedom from our weariness. And it's this good news that can be really, really good, that Christianity doesn't come to us to bring the crushing weight of religion, but to bring liberating joy. But it sounds like it just can't be right. And one objection would be, but doesn't that just throw out the Bible? I mean, you read through the Old Testament, and God gave command after command after command. He gave all these laws, and he said, this is what righteousness is. So isn't it arrogant and maybe even blasphemous to just chuck that whole Old Testament like that? I mean, can we really presume to introduce this whole new system of justification through faith in Christ as opposed to the good old tried-and-true God-given way of allowing us to be just and holy by our obedience and our radical Christian living? So people would hear this message of free grace and they would say, that's pretty, pretty bold. And we have the very words of God in our law. And here you are, Paul, saying that that whole thing doesn't matter at all. You're saying that God's grace is free, that we don't do those things to get to God. So what do we do with this? It seems like you're contradicting what God says. So that's where we pick up in chapter 3, verse 31. He says, do we then overthrow the law by this faith? By no means. On the contrary, we uphold the law. So Paul comes and says, oh, I'm not chucking the law of God at all. I'm actually maintaining it or upholding it. I'm using, for what it, using it for what it was always supposed to be used for. You're accusing me of twisting the Bible into this story of salvation by grace through faith. I'm telling you that you've twisted it into a moral self-improvement plan. You say that I'm twisting it into the story of God's favor for us on account of Christ, and I'm telling you that you've been twisting it all along into stories of good guys getting blessed and bad guys getting cursed. You've been reading it wrong the entire time. And maybe you're just like Paul's original audience here. Maybe your whole life you grew up being taught that the Bible is just a rule book. These are the good things you should do and the bad things you shouldn't do. And it's a a story of heroic characters, and these heroes do right, and the moral of the story is that we should do right like they did, and that'll make us pretty good people. Follow the commands to be good. Follow the heroes to be heroic. Dare to be a Daniel who was brave, and you should be brave like him. Slay your giants just like David slew his giants. Do the things these heroes do. It's a book of heroes and a book of morals. It's a rule book. And that really is the standard way that people interpret the Bible today. It's like a combination of Aesop's fables and karma, where it's, it's stories that teach us some moral lessons and we should do good, and karma that says if we do good, then God's good will come back to us. The bird's back, isn't it? Okay. So <laughs> this, there's a sparrow in here, and um, it, it could not have been more distracting during the first service. So we'll see how it goes in this service. We'll pretend it's not there, but... There it is. All right, so, so Paul's coming and talking to these people. It was funny just to watch your eyes shift in that direction. It was like, it's here again. During the first service, Rich actually came up on the stage and tried to trap it in the drum cage, which was not at all distracting, I'm sure, but here we go. So try to, try to stay with me here. Um, Paul is coming in and telling these people that their Bible says something that they don't think that it says. That, that it was actually teaching something very different all along. That it teaches and has always taught that we get righteousness with God not through our good works, but as a free gift from God through our faith. 
And Paul's going to now make that case by going back to some of their stories. He's going to say, you're accusing me of chucking the Bible, but I want to show you that this has been the teaching of the Bible all along. You accuse me of kind of usurping Judaism, and he's going to teach them, no, this is what Judaism is all about. This is what it taught. And he's going to go to the story of Abraham, who's their greatest patriarch, and David, who's their greatest king, to show them that the only way that those people were loved and accepted by God was not by their being awesome, but it was by God. So chapter 4, verse 1, he says, What then shall we say by, was gained by Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh? So this guy, Abraham, was the first of the Jewish patriarchs. He was really the first Jew. Isaiah 51.1 calls him the stone from which all of Israel was cut. And he was generally considered to be a very good guy morally. In fact, they went overboard in their appreciation of the morality of Abraham. They thought that this guy was perfect. Um, the Jews had a couple of books that would float around, uh, one of them in our Apocrypha that is, they're not books of the Bible, but they are books that were considered pretty high level, almost sacred books. And in one of those books, in the book of the Jubilees, it says, Abraham was perfect in all his deeds with the, Lord's, with the Lord, and well-pleasing in righteousness all the days of his life. So while the Bible makes it clear that Abraham did sin, the, the common folklore said that he really didn't that he perfectly obeyed God's law, he didn't need to repent, he kept it, he was a good guy. And so if anyone could be righteous by doing, it was the guy who did doing the best. It was the original Jew, it was the prototype. And so Paul says, how did Abraham get to God? And their default answer would be by being a good guy. Uh, Abraham was good, and because he was good, God accepted him, and, and there he was, welcomed by God because of all of his good works. And if he didn't get to God by doing good works, then we certainly couldn't either, because none of us would measure up to Abraham. So verse 2, he says, For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. So the first thing he says is, okay, so you've got this idea that Abraham worked his way to God and got to God by, by doing good. He goes, that's not really possible, because this is God we're talking about here. I mean, God is holy and knows all things and sees people all the way to the bottom. And so maybe Abraham could boast about being a good guy compared to other people, but no one's going to stand before God and boast. No one's going to be there on judgment day saying, I wait, can't wait till it's my turn. Can't wait for my evaluation because I've nailed it. No. Even Abraham, even the best of the best, we all know that we've sinned and fallen short of God's glory. So he says, just the nature of things tells you that Abraham couldn't boast before God. Verse 3, he says, for what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now, notice an important pattern here, and this is an important pattern for our lives, too. In chapter 4, verse 1, he says, what then shall we say? And in chapter 4, verse 3, he says, what does the scripture say? This is a great way for us to learn to think. I mean, Paul treats it like there's no distinction at all between what the Bible says and what God says. That when the scripture says something, it's God saying it. And so often what we'll do is we'll say, I know what the Bible says, but what do we say? As if we are the final authority over the Bible. Or we'll say, I know what the Bible says, but what does the Spirit say? As if the Spirit and the Bible are in contradiction. When the Spirit is God and the Bible is the sword of the Spirit. There is no distinction between what the scripture says and what God says. So the question to ask is not what answers about God can we come up with outside of the Bible, it's what has God told us in the Bible. 
And this is important, especially when we deal with controversial issues, because if we say, okay, I've got some information from the Bible, but what do we say? We end up making the mood of the day and the opinions of the day the ultimate authority over the scripture. And we'll go through Romans, and there are all kinds of controversial issues and questions where we'll be asking, what shall we say about predestination? What shall we say about gender? What shall we say about the Holy Spirit and his gifts? What shall we say about forgiving enemies? What shall we say about submitting to the authorities? And and then we tend to say, well, here's what the Bible says, so what shall we say? Paul's pattern is, what shall we say? What does the Bible say? So people here are accusing him of chucking the Bible, and he goes to the Bible to say, no, I'm going to the Bible for my answers. This is coming from there, and if it's not coming from there, then it's not valid. He's not saying I'm coming up with something new and cool. I'm not trying to say what do all the coolest teachers think or what are all the cool churches saying these days. I'm not saying we've evolved past these books, so how do, we, how do we change them? He's saying what does the Bible say? And for all of us, we will never be let down if we build a lifetime pattern of relying on the scriptures, of reading them, of studying them, meditating on them, discussing them, memorizing portions of them. If a major pursuit in our lives is learning what the Bible says, then a major pursuit in our lives is learning what God says. These are the words of God. This is where wisdom is. This is where answers are. This is where Jesus is presented to us most clearly. So give yourself to this book. Years ago, Isaac Watts wrote a song about the Bible, and and here are some of the words from it. He says, laden with guilt and full of fears, I fly to thee, my Lord, and not a glimpse of hope appears, but in thy written word. The volume of my Father's grace does all my grief assuage. Here I behold my Savior's face almost in every page. This is the field where hidden lies the pearl of price unknown. That merchant is divinely wise who makes the pearl his own. Here consecrated water flows to quench my thirst of sin. Here the fair tree of knowledge grows. No danger dwells within. This is the judge that ends the strife where wit and reason fail. My guide to everlasting life through all this gloomy veil. Oh, may thy counsels, mighty God, my roving feet command. Nor I forsake the happy road that leads to thy right hand. This is the place where we see Jesus. This is the field where that that pearl of price unknown is is hidden. This is the book to give ourselves to. So Paul goes to the same place he's always gone for his answers. He goes to the Bible and he quotes from Genesis 15, 6, where it says, Abraham believed the Lord and he counted it to him as righteousness. Now, when the New Testament quotes a verse from the Old Testament, it's not only calling our attention to that verse, but it's calling our attention to that context. And so, so it's almost like it's putting a link in the New Testament for us to clink on, click on. So when you see, here's a verse from the Bible, what he's calling us to do is go back to that story, go back to that place in the Old Testament, read the context, know what's going on there, because that's what makes the point that he's making here in the New Testament. And so the story of Abraham actually begins back in Genesis 12. You've got a paper Bible if you want to hold your finger in Romans and go back to Genesis 12. Um, this takes place about 4,000 years ago for us. And there's this guy named Abram. And Abram is living in a city called Ur of the Chaldees. Joshua 24, verse 2 says that he and his family worshipped false gods. So they weren't followers of the God of the Bible. They, they worshipped like everybody else does, but they weren't worshipping the, the real thing. Uh, in Ur, people worshipped the moon. So there's a pretty good chance that Abram was a moon-worshipping pagan. He's living in a big coastal city. He's just sort of an ordinary guy in a big town, totally nondescript. There's nothing special about him. But God decides he's going to use that guy 
to begin his process of taking back creation from the curse of sin, of redeeming a unique people for himself, and then filling the whole world with his glory. It is just like God to do this. And he's about to carry out this huge grand plan for history that's going to begin with Abraham and still be unfolding 4,000 years later in our day. And he's going to do the whole thing with a totally insignificant schmo in a big town. It would be like God saying, I am going to transform the universe, so I am choosing Phil in Chicago who works in a cubicle. He's my guy. There, there was nothing about him. There wasn't, like, Abraham was a rock star. Abraham was a king. And God says, well, I got to have a king. God chose an ordinary guy out of nowhere and says, you're the guy. So Genesis 12, verse 1, here's how it happened. It says, now the Lord said to Abram, go from your country and from your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation. And I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. In him who dishonors you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So God comes to Abram and chooses him. And he says, Abram, go. Away from your home country. Fly away like a bird. And, <laughs> and go to, to this other place that I've called you to go. And if you read Genesis 12, you think, okay, well, Abram, good guy. I'm sure he did good things. But you keep going. And then he goes to Egypt. And when he goes to Egypt, he's a scumball. He goes there with his wife, and he tells his wife to lie and say that she's his sister. And that way the other guys won't kill Abram because they want his wife. He has her live with Pharaoh. It's this nasty story. If we were to write a book on good biblical manhood, we would say, just don't do what Abram did. Don't hide behind your wife like a shield. Don't be scummy. This is the opposite of chivalry that he demonstrates. So you can't read the story of Abraham and say, this guy was a good guy all along, and that's why God picked him. He, he goes in and he does some scummy, nasty things. Now, he also has his bright moments. In chapter 14, he's a pretty good guy. He, he goes and um, kind of goes all Liam Neeson and Taken and rescues his nephew Lot, who had been kidnapped. So you're kind of cheering for him there. But overall, you look, you look at the life of Abraham, and it is a mixed bag. And then in Genesis 15, Abraham is 85 years old, and then this happens in verse 1. It says, after these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram, I am your shield, and your reward shall be very great. But Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. And Abram said, Behold, you've given me no offspring, and a member of my household will be my heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him, This man shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be the heir. And he brought him outside and said, look toward heaven and number the stars if you were able to number them. And he said to him, so shall your offspring be. And he believed the Lord and he counted it to him as righteousness. So God tells Abraham, listen, I'm going to keep this promise to make you a great nation. And it's not going to be this other guy who's connected to your household, who's going to be the heir. You're going to have a son. Now, Abram is 85 at this point, but God said it. So Abram believed God. He has faith, which we said in an earlier sermon, is knowledge, assent, and trust. He knows God's promise. He agrees that God will keep his promise, and he trusts the promise. And when he does, it's credited to him as righteousness. 
He hasn't done anything holy. He hasn't done anything righteous. He just believes. He trusts in God, and God credits his account with his righteousness. He's made pure. He's made holy by faith, not through any works that he's done. In fact, look at what he's done so far here. Nothing. He looks at the sky. That's all he does. And God says, look up there. Look at those stars of the sky. That's how many descendants you're going to have. And Abraham, I'm sure, is thinking, well, I'm 85. I don't have any kids. This seems unlikely. But I believe God. I believe him. I, I trust that when God says something, he will do it. I believe that God keeps his promises. And when he believes, he is forgiven and he's made righteous without doing anything at all. So back in Romans, people are saying, Paul, you are chucking what you know of the Bible. And he says, oh, not at all. Abram believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. This doctrine, this teaching actually comes from the Bible. You guys have been reading it the wrong way all along. And yeah, Abraham does some great things, especially after this point. But he had righteousness before he had good works. Faith produces good works, but works don't produce forgiveness and righteousness before God. So Paul goes on, verse 4, he says, Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. So he says the only way to get to God is by grace. It's as a gift. He says there's no way you could work for it. But if you set out to work for it, if you think I'm going to get to God by doing good things, okay, but that's the system that you've got to stick to. Um, Just to kind of illustrate this, you know, imagine that one of my kids were to say to me, listen, I want to get paid for the chores that I do. And sometimes we do pay them for certain chores, give them some opportunities to earn some money, and I think that's a good thing to do. But there are an awful lot of chores that we just do as the product of being part of a family. I mean, everybody takes turns doing dishes, and nobody's getting paid for it. Everybody cleans the room and vacuums. Everybody cleans bathroom. Like that, those are things that you just do because you're part of this family, and you don't get paid for it. But imagine one of the kids were to press and to say, no, I think we should get paid for all the chores we do. This is how that conversation would go. I would say, you're right. Okay, you want to do a payment system? We'll do that. Let's make sure that everybody around here gets paid their fair share. We'll make this work. So let's put together a ledger. Right here in the left-hand column, let's put all of the jobs that you do. And, and let's put how much you're owed for each one of them. You cleaned your room. It's probably worth five bucks. Swept the floor? We'll give you three. Five bucks for, for doing the dishes, two bucks for vacuuming. You've got $15 coming, which is a pretty good payday. So, so congratulations. Yeah, we're going to pay everybody what they owe. And now we're going to do a right-hand column. A couple of you are ahead of me. And, uh, and, and this is what we'll put in the right-hand column. Your share of the mortgage. Um, your share of the groceries. Utilities. We'll divide that by six and each pay your share. Home repairs. Your health insurance. Let's put all that in the right-hand column. And, and let's just have everybody pay what they owe and let's have everyone get paid what they deserve. You're going to get $15, but I have a feeling you're going to owe me an awful lot more than that. So at this point, the whole getting paid what we deserve thing doesn't seem like it's paying off that well. In fact, you don't want that. All of a sudden, the kids are going, why don't we just do grace? Like, we're, we're part of the family, and we serve as the overflow. It seems like that would be a better way to do things. And this is really exactly how it works. If we want to get to God by doing stuff and getting him to owe us something, cool. Two columns. Left side of the ledger the good works that we've done. I mean, let's just assume that there are some purely good works that we've done. We'll we'll put those in the left side and and you get some righteousness points for those. 
We've made some sacrifices. We've put some money in the offering. We've loved neighbors well. We've done some secret good deeds that nobody knew about. Those things all go in that left-hand column, and let's say they all add up and kind of put God in our debt, but the right-hand column. Romans 3, 10 through 20, there's no one righteous, not even one. Our feet are are swift to shed blood. We've sinned, we've lied, we've accrued a sin debt that is far greater than our our righteous account in the left-hand column. And if we want to play the works game, fine. Yeah, play it. We will lose. But God's a gracious father. And he says there's another way to do things, and that's by grace. So verse 5, he says, And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. So that's been the message of the Bible all along, that you can't possibly put more in the left-hand column than the right-hand column anyway. So God's provided this way where you can be made righteous, but it's got to be someone else's righteousness. It's got to be something that's credited to your account. It can't be something that you earned. And so God's provided this way where we could turn and believe and trusting in him have righteousness credited to us. And he says, that's the way it always has been. That's the way it was with that prototype Jew in Abraham. That's the way it was with the ultimate patriarch. He needed free grace and he received it and that's how he knew God. So now let's look at the ultimate king. Verse 6, he says, Just as David also speaks of the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteousness apart from works. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. So King David thought righteousness came when God didn't count his sin against him. It wasn't that he earned anything. It wasn't that he worked his way to God. God graciously said, here's your sin. It's real, and I'm not going to count it against you. I'm going to credit you with something else. And we'll go to Psalm 32 in a minute to, uh, to kind of talk about how this unfolded in David's life. But another question that the Jews would have been asking when Paul was saying all this would have been, but God gave us this covenant of circumcision. And that was the thing that really made us Jewish, that really made us righteous, And if we had that sign put on us, the sign of circumcision, that made us true Jews, that made us truly righteous, that made us part of the community of people that would be a light to all the world, our righteousness comes from this outward observance of circumcision. So surely if we do that thing, that gets us right with God. It's got to be that thing that's the defining thing between us and God. And here's what Paul says in verse 9. He says, is this blessing then only for the circumcised or also for the uncircumcised? For we say that faith was counted to Abraham as righteousness. How then was it counted to him? Was it before or after he had been circumcised? It was not after, but before he was circumcised. And the point he's making here is that Abraham believed God and was righteous, and that actually happened 14 years before he was circumcised. Genesis 15, where we read, and he believed God, looked up at the sky. He was 85 years old at that point. He got circumcised when he was 99. But God had already been calling him righteous for 14 years. So this is kind of like the equivalent of someone becoming a Christian but not being baptized yet. I mean, for us, the the sign and the seal of the covenant we're in with God is baptism. And when we come to faith in Jesus, when we believe in him, that's credited to us as righteousness. Now, we're supposed to be baptized soon afterwards. The two are supposed to go hand in hand. But if someone comes to believe in Jesus and has not yet been baptized, they're still Christians. They're still righteous. They haven't received the sign or the seal yet, but they're still righteous people. Abraham, in the same way, had not yet been circumcised, but he came to believe, and he was righteous. So 
So verse 11, it says, he received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. The purpose was to make him the father of all who believe without being circumcised so that righteousness would be counted to them as well. And to make him the father of the circumcised who are not merely circumcised, but who also walk in the footsteps of the faith that our father Abraham had before he was circumcised. So he was righteous for 14 years before being circumcised. And for those 14 years, he was forgiven and fully accepted by God. So this makes him not only the prototype for the Jews who would be accepted by faith, but also for the Gentiles who would never be circumcised. Abraham was the ultimate Jew, and he was actually the ultimate Gentile for a while too. And in both of those situations, before he was circumcised and after, because he had faith, he was righteous. So faith doesn't come from the outward observance, or righteousness doesn't come from the outward observance, it comes from faith. Okay, I know this is some, some heady theology and just sort of a lot of what's the point, but let's turn to th- Psalm 32 because this is what the point is. The point is that the kind of experience that Abraham had with God and that David had with God is the experience that we can have with God. That the way they were made right by God, right with God, the way that it was enough for them is the way it can be enough for us. That the way we come to God has never changed, it's always been the same, and it's not by us being really radical and doing all kinds of things to exhaust ourselves. It's not by us accepting a crushing religious burden, but it's by having those burdens lifted by grace through faith in Christ. And when we receive the righteousness that's by faith, it should feel a whole lot more like I can finally breathe than it does like I'm being crushed by the weight of this whole thing. So Psalm 32, verse 1, this is where David is expounding on his experience with God. He says, Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity and whose spirit there is no deceit. So David is singing a song about his relationship with the Lord here. And he says, I'm blessed, I'm happy because of the burden lifting that God has brought into my life. And he describes his burden lifting three different ways. One is by being forgiven, which means that the guilt is lifted off. You know, a lot of times our our Christianity seems like it is driven by our being guilty. But David says, no, it actually lifted my guilt. When I came to this saving faith, when I came to this place where God counted righteousness to my account and took away my sin, that's where the guilt was lifted. He also describes it as having sins covered which means that his sins no longer define his relationship with God. He defines it as as his sin not being counted against him, which means that his sin was erased from the ledgers, his debt's been canceled. So this is freeing. When we come to Christ, we're not coming to a religion to burden us, we're coming to be freed. We're not getting saddled with this system that will crush us, we're having that lifted off of us because Jesus carried all of that debt for us. So we don't have to wonder, do I need to do more and be more radical and stretch more to be an okay Christian, to be okay with God? We don't need to be on a religious treadmill because the whole experience of coming to God is a burden lifting. Verse 3, he says, For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer, Silah. So notice how he says the opposite of his freedom was keeping silent. He's keeping silent about his sin. In verse 2, it says that he was full of deceit. 
And God had said one thing about his sin, and he was saying another. God was saying it was bad, and he was ignoring it. God was saying he needed grace, and he needed that lifted. He needed a savior, and maybe he was saying, I can, I can manage it. I can handle this. He was silent about his sin that God was talking about, and it's like it was wasting him away. It was draining his strength. It was stealing his joy. It was consuming him. And this is the life of clinging to our sin as opposed to Christ. And so the question for us is, is that you? David had this stony silence between him and his maker because he was unwilling to acknowledge his sin that was keeping him from God. He said it's like his bones were wasting away. It's like it was crushing him. I mean, notice too how holding on to his sin is the opposite of receiving forgiveness. So when we talk about this free grace that we can have that's apart from the works that we do, that doesn't call our sin okay. It means that there's a remedy for our sin. It doesn't give us permission to cling to our sin. It gives us our only out from our sin. So, so this, this teaching of free grace is not that there is no wrong and it's okay to do wrong. It's that when we're clinging to that wrong, we need to get out. And the way to get out is not just by doing right. It's by trusting in a savior. So, so religion can be a frustrating weight if it's all about image management if it's all about hiding, if it's all about covering, if it's all about clinging to sin, if it's all about trying to stay distant from God just enough and not say what he says about my sin so I don't have to change anything, it wastes away our bones. Verse five, he says, I acknowledged my sin to you and I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Selah. So notice the solution here. He doesn't say, I had sinned, but then I fixed it. I had sinned, but then I paid for it. He confessed it, and the Lord forgave. It wasn't something he could do. He couldn't do the ledger thing. He knew that, so he just confessed it, cried out for a Savior, and the Lord gave him mercy. And a lot of times we think that, man, this, this sin, this, this course of action that I'm committed to, this is my source of comfort. This is the place that I go for, for my joy. This is the place I go for my relief. And if I ever let go of that thing, then I would never have joy again. I'd never have the happiness that I'm after. But when David finally confessed his sin and called it what God called it, God became for him a massive joy. It wasn't painful to let it go. It was, it was burden lifting. Verse 6, he says, Therefore, let everyone who is godly offer prayer to you at a time when you may be found. Surely in the rush of great waters, they shall not reach him. You are a hiding place for me. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with shouts of deliverance. So God became for him a hiding place. He found, David found God to be what God said he would be to Abraham. He was a shield and a very great reward. We think that the best thing we can do sometimes is hide from God cover our sin, manage our sin, pretend it's not that big a deal, think we'll fix it on our own. We hide from him, but he says, no, I confess this stuff to him. He forgave me, and then he became my hiding place. Now he walks with me, and he teaches me, and instructs me, and surrounds me, not with shouts of judgment, but shouts of deliverance. Verse 8, I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. Be not like a horse or a mule without understanding, which must be curbed with bit and bridle, or it will not stay near you. Many are the sorrows of the wicked, 
but steadfast love surrounds the one who trusts in the Lord. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, O righteous, and shout for joy, all you upright in heart. So there's steadfast love, pursuing love for everyone who will trust in him. If we're trusting in our works, we'll never be made glad by that. We'll only be exhausted. Or maybe if we're, we're good at deceiving ourselves, we could be made arrogant by that. People who are exhausted by religion and people who are arrogant because of their religion, both of them are missing the gospel. The message of the gospel is that we can't save ourselves, we can't fix ourselves, we can't get to God on our own. So he came to us. Jesus came and he died on the cross to pay the price for all of our sins so that our sins would not be counted against us. He died on the cross having lived a perfect righteous life and when he was there, he took his righteousness and credited that to our account for free, not because of anything we did. We received it not through our works but just through the empty hand of faith. And because that's been given to us from the outside, it can't be taken away. We can't wreck that. It's it's this free gift that comes from God. We don't have to perform to maintain it. We haven't wandered so far that we're now cut off from it. We have this free grace in Christ that is so much better than anything that religion can offer. So if in our hearts, our our Christianity just feels like the crippling burden. It feels like our bones are wasting away. We're missing the gospel. Because what it should feel like is freedom. Not freedom to sin, but freedom from it. Not freedom to live however we want to live, but but freedom to live for God and then finding him to be our safe place and our shelter, finding him to surround us with shouts of deliverance, with steadfast love. That's what Christianity does. Coming to faith in him absolutely transforms that relationship so that we can be glad. This is great news. It's a great gospel. It wasn't new when Paul was preaching it. It's the way God had always justified people. But we're so quick to put those religious lenses back on and say, there must be something I have to do to get God to accept me. We drift back toward that week after week and day after day, which is why we need again and again to hear this gospel. Christ has died. Christ was buried. Christ rose again. And that's enough. And if you believe, even with the weakest of faith, you are loved and accepted by God. This is great news. So, so let's pray. Well, Father, we come to you and, and we confess that we are just so deeply attached to our own works. Lord, we just drift back to trying to justify ourselves before you by our own obedience, even though the work of our hands can't be accepted into your holy presence. Sometimes we bind ourselves and others to do things in your name that you never commanded us to do. We think that by pursuing empty rituals or denying ourselves things that you've declared good, then you'll somehow be pleased with us. At other times we obey your word, but we do it out of a self-centered desire for our own glory and in order to declare our independence from you. We'll avoid the small sins and we'll pursue acts of righteousness that we find pretty easy to perform, but then we blatantly ignore the far more important things that have such a strong grasp on our hearts. We'll denounce others for their inability to do the things that we do, but then we'll ignore our own deep pride and our own lovelessness. So Father, forgive us. Jesus, thank you for being our high priest. Thank you that as our representative, you never offered dead works to your Father, but all of your obedience 
came from a heart that was fixed on pleasing him. We thank you that in Christ there was never any pride or self-exaltation. You weren't selectively obedient in the commands that you kept. Your hands and your heart were always pure and always clean. And you offered a perfect and unblemished life of obedience as a sacrifice in our place. We thank you that you presented your own blood as the atoning offering. And that enables us to draw near to God with boldness and with shouts of joy. So Holy Spirit, we pray that you would give us confidence as we draw near to the throne of grace. Not a confidence in ourselves, in our own goodness, but a confidence in Christ and in his merits, in his death and his resurrection. Teach us, we pray, to enthrone Christ in our hearts and to be humbled. Equip us to serve others out of the same mercy and grace that we've received from you. Give us this, Lord. Give us this joy and this gladness and this freedom and this burden lifting that comes from knowing that you have offered once and for all that sacrifice in our place. Give us hope in your again returning to us. Give us confidence in the forgiveness and the freedom and the pardon we have from you. We pray these things in the strong name of Jesus.